Welcome to Asia Rising, where we discuss the news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and today we'll be looking at China's one-child policy, the effects it has had on the country, and how an impending change to a two-child policy could change things. With me to go through these matters is Dr. James Leibold, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at La Trobe University. Jim, welcome to you. Yeah, thanks, Matt. The one-child policy has had an effect on almost every aspect of China. Why was it initially established? What problems did the country have that were trying to be addressed? Yeah, I think the roots of the issue are, are quite deep. There's long been a kind of tension running throughout Chinese culture and civilization between man and nature. Let me share with you a little uh, parable, a very famous story from Chinese history. Uh, in China, Chinese, it's known as um, uh, Yugong Yishan, or Yugong Moves a Mountain. And it tells this uh, story of um, an old man, Yugong, who uh, lived uh, in a rather remote part of China. He had a very good life. He had lots of sons. He had a nice uh, field uh, in which to grow his crops. He had, though, one problem. Where his house was located and where his fields were located were separated by a massive mountain. So every morning he would have to get up, climb over the mountain, hoe his uh, crops, uh, return, of course, at lunchtime for, for lunch and a sleep, and then back out into the fields and then back home at night. One day he woke up and he said, geez, this is really frustrating. I'm going to move that mountain. And so literally he started to uh, pick away at the mountain with a, with a pickaxe, chip, 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 chip. And this old wise man came walking along and said, you going, what are you doing? Yugong said, well, I'm going to move this mountain. It's very inconvenient for me. The wise man said, you're, you're such a fool, Yugong. What are you going to do? You, you'll never be able to remove this mountain. Uh, and uh, Yugong says, yes, you're right. Uh, I won't be able to do it. Uh, one day I will die. But I have sons, and they will continue on, and they will have sons, and they will continue on, and one day we will move this mountain. And that shows that kind of belief running throughout Chinese uh, culture and society that mankind ultimately can shape its environment. And this gets tied up, of course, with beliefs that, you know, the more men, the better. And so when Mao Zedong and the Chinese communists came to power, late 1940s, Mao believed that was their secret weapon, particularly against the United States. Uh, Mao also once famously said that everybody comes into the world with two hands, but only one mouth. So they have the ability to produce more things than they can consume. You know, China's large population was good. It needed to continue to increase its population as a sort of asset against the struggle against uh, foreign imperialism that uh, results in this, this booming Chinese population that you see, you know, starting in the 19th and into the 20th century. Early on, and even in the 1950s, you had economists and demographers warning Mao and the Chinese communists that this could become a problem. The president of Beijing University at the time, uh, Ma Ying-chu, warned that this is going to be detrimental to China's economy. And he advocated, this is back in the 1950s, a one-child policy. But he was uh, attacked by Mao, labeled a, a Malthusian, and essentially sacked from his position. And so you go into the, the 1950s, 60s, and the Cultural Revolution, and China's uh, population really begins to to rapidly increase. So you go over the billion mark and continues to climb. And it wasn't until the 1980s, after the death of Mao, that some of the followers of Mao Chu once again put on the table this concern that if China's population continued to rise at a rapid rate, this would be detrimental to the economy 
Deng Xiaoping was uh, quite sympathetic to these calls. And so beginning in around 1979, they begin to drop plans for what became uh, known as the, the one-child policy that gets implemented in the 1980s and continues uh, on uh, to this day, some 35 years later. So 1980s, that's really quite a, a recent phenomena, but it's it's become so heavily entrenched in part of what China is now, is that you can only have one child. They went from a fertility rate of about six to seven per person, wasn't it? It was really a, a problem that was out of control. And once it came into effect, what are some of the, the biggest ways that it's had an impact on China? So the birth rate in the 1960s is around six uh, per couple has dropped now to 1.5. So it's estimated that the so-called one-child policy has saved around 400 million births. Clearly, it's had a, a massive impact on uh, Chinese um, society. I should point out, though, of course, that the policy never really was a one-child policy, per se. I mean, the Chinese don't refer to it as that. They refer to it as a family planning policy. From the very beginning, there was uh, exemptions uh, for minorities, uh, for people with disabilities. Even in the countryside, quite quickly, they realized that they needed to provide exemptions if the first child was uh, a girl due to the preference that Chinese in general have for boys over girls, but also particularly in the countryside where it's seen as very important for carrying on the family name. And so it was never really a one-child policy. I think the best way to think about it is probably a 1.5-child policy of sorts. But as you said, it's had massive implications uh, for Chinese society. And I everything to the kind of interference, the direct interference of the party state in the lives of women in particular, but also the lives of young couples in terms of uh, the punishment if people violated the policy, uh, forced sterilizations, uh, forced abortions uh, for people who violated the policy. There's around 117 boys for every 100 girls in China today. And that's a result of this preference for male offsprings uh, that resulted in selected uh, abortions as well as female infanticide. And so you've created this demographic uh, gap between men and women in China that has all kinds of implications. It's estimated there are about 25 million extra men out there that can't find brides, so-called bachelor villages in the, in the countryside. It's led to increased bride prices. You know, it's hard to get a good bride. So men had to invest a lot into it, whether it be buying a, uh, an apartment in the city or, uh, you know, offering um, all sorts of clothing and furniture for their bride. Been an increase in the trafficking of women. Of course, the rise in prostitution, even bringing in brides from overseas as a healthy trade and bringing women in from Southeast Asia to supply these uh, excess uh, men. So the gender implications of this have been quite big. But I think the one that probably gets the biggest attention and the one that I think the authorities in Beijing are most concerned about, the aging nature of the Chinese uh, economy. I mean, China is going to get old before it gets rich. Uh, it's estimated by uh, 2025 that about one-fourth of all Chinese will be over the age of 60. And so this means that, A, they're not productive parts of society and engaged in, in labor production, but also they require care. Someone's got to look after them. They need to create a social safety network that is going to become increasingly expensive. It's estimated, again, by 2030 that about 40% of China's GDP will go 
towards providing pensions and uh, and aged care support for this this large uh, elderly population. And that, I think, is the one that really kind of tipped the authorities in, in Beijing to act finally. I mean, it's a sort of policy that can keep academics busy for years to come, looking at the little nuanced ways that this had an effect on employment in different places, how cities have grown. What's some of the, the subtle ways that you've noticed that have been cropping up in in academia circles? There's many different angles to it. I mean, one I'll talk about perhaps doesn't get as much press, but I mean, what are the implications for social relations and family life of, you know, a society in which um, you have single children families? What is it like to grow up without any siblings, you know, to live in a family where you're it, uh, you're the prized possession? Chinese culture has always valued large families and all of a sudden to turn it on its head and sort of say, well, you're just going to have one child. There's a, a syndrome uh, known as the little emperor syndrome in China today where ideally sons but sometimes daughters are, uh, you know, are showered with affection. Family resources are pulled together to ensure that they get the best possible education, that they land the best possible job. And this comes with tremendous pressure on these kids, right? So what if you don't succeed? What if you can't succeed academically? What if you can't land that good job? Big implications for social relations in China. And I think China is still kind of dealing with the implications of that and the fallout. I mean, a lot of these one-child uh, families, uh, the, the children are now, you know, starting to enter maturity, and the, this is going to play out for many years to come. How about something, say, directly in your interest area? Have you noticed how it's played out amongst ethnic minority groups in China? Yeah, this is going to be something that'll be uh, of great interest to watch. There have always been exceptions to the one-child policy, and one of the areas in which they've occurred is uh, among ethnic uh, minorities. Uh, Ethnic minorities traditionally uh, have much larger families, and so it would be a bit unfair to kind of impose this uh, one-child policy on them. Most ethnic minorities can have uh, two children. Some, if they're in the cities, only if the first child is a girl. But some groups, particularly the Uyghurs and the Tibetans who live in rural areas, have been allowed to have three, in some cases, even four or five. Of course, the policies varied uh, over time. But what we've seen in the last couple of decades is uh, an increased tightening of these exemptions, particularly amongst the Uyghurs and the Tibetans, to try to rein in the, um, the birth rate amongst these two groups, which, you know, would exceed three, particularly amongst rural women in both these societies. You know, you have two counter trends. One, an attempt to kind of rein in the, the birth rates among uh, Uyghurs and Tibetans in particular, and then this kind of loosening of birth rates amongst the Han. So there's a natural kind of tension there. But a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's this very strong eugenics culture running throughout modern Chinese uh, society, a belief that, you know, not all children are born equal, that uh, some have what the Chinese refer to as um, a better sujer or a quality to them. So the children among Han urbanites are uh, born of a better quality. And so what you want to do is encourage more of these high sujer, high quality births, uh, while you decline the births amongst, uh, you know, rural people, ethnic minorities, etc. There's a tension there. I mean, the party clearly wants urban Han families to have more children, but at the same time, it wants to rein in uh, ethnic minorities, but that is potentially quite dangerous. Thus far, the way they've been doing that is 
essentially providing cash awards to women who agree to be sterilized after they have one wow. or two children. Um, That's harsh. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a carrot uh, approach yeah. as opposed to the stick approach, which has been mainly used amongst the Han. The stick approach being uh, fining people for having extra births. And so whether it can kind of navigate the tricky politics of that uh, without being seen as being um, discriminatory. Uh, uh, discriminatory and, yeah. I, you know, we'll have to wait and see. China has announced that the one-child policy will become a two-child policy. I'm sure they're not using either of those names to apply to this, but it's likely going to happen at the moment, they're saying, from March 2016. What are some of the implications for that kind of thing going forward? It's likely that the implications are going to be quite minimal, at least in the short term. First of all, it will take 20-odd years for any of these additional children to reach maturity. So their impact on the economy will be quite minimal, at least on the, in the short term. Demographers out there would argue that the birth rate is kind of naturally declined, so there's less of an incentive, particularly in urban areas, for families to have more than one child. It's just simply too expensive. You know, it's a natural tendency in human societies as you become more uh, wealthy and, and prosperous that you decide that uh, you're going to have fewer children. Probably the biggest implications might be in the countryside where there, there could be some additional births, but many in the countryside already are able to have uh, two children, particularly. And so uh, some argue that there will be very few additional births as a result of this policy. So the question then uh, is, well, will China go the next step and just completely eradicate the family planning policy entirely? Coming into effect next year, this is something that isn't going to have an impact for years to come. Have they left it too late? Many um, demographers and economists believe that, that that is the case. They've left it way too late. The impact has already been done. You know, it's much easier to... I guess, turn off the, the baby tap, you know, to reduce births than it is to turn it back on, particularly when you've got a far more prosperous society that's um, become quite used to one-child families. But again, we'll have to wait and see. These things are going to play out over decades, not, not years. And I think that, that could be the problem because China's going to hit problems in the, in the near future quite quickly before any new babies have time to mature or contribute to the society. Yeah, I mean, it's going to have fewer working people. It's going to have a very grey, old society that it somehow needs to, to look after. Within the next decade. Yeah, within the next decade. Now, I mean, it might also bring up some interesting implications for the need to bring in uh, migrants to take up lower-paid job. The secret of China's economic miracle has been this great pool of, uh, of cheap labor that's come off the countryside into places like Guangzhou and uh, Fujian and elsewhere, producing all these uh, things that we can buy at Kmart and Walmart and other places. But what happens when that pool of uh, unskilled labor dries up? Will China need to import labor from overseas? What are the implications of that? China doesn't really have a tradition of uh, immigration. I think ideally they would think, well, we'll move up the value chain and actually we won't be producing you know, widgets and uh, stuffed animals and you know, we're moving into kind of a knowledge economy. But... Um, that's easier to plan for and more difficult to implement. So if academic and demographers were raising flags about the one-child policy and its effects on China as early as the 1990s, why has it taken this long to be scrapped? Well, the uh, short answer is it's all about money. The uh, policy has brought in tremendous amounts of money to uh, locals, particularly rural county governments. The structure of the so-called family planning 
segment of the Chinese bureaucracy is massive. You know, there's about a half a million people that are that are full time employed in the family planning units to enforce the policy. There's also probably another 10 million who work part time. Some of them as, you know, paid thugs to enforce this policy. And most of the enforcement, while some of it does result in this kind of forced sterilization or forced abortion, most of it comes in the form of fines. Yeah. Families that have extra births have to pay a so-called social compensation fee. And this brings in billions of dollars into the coffers of local county governments. And that money is becoming increasingly important, uh, particularly in, in the countryside. Uh, this is probably one of their biggest sources of revenue. That's created a, a kind of vested interest group that is very difficult to tear down. And in fact, while the policy has been announced and it still needs to be approved by the National People's Congress in March, that doesn't mean that it will necessarily be implemented in a way that uh, you know policymakers in Beijing hope. They're not going to dismantle the bureaucracy, but how are they going to wean these local county governments off this uh, form of revenue? The implications of that will take years to, to play out. The Chinese government would point at this policy and say, look, at least we can say it did what we wanted it to. It was really effective. Fertility rate was up around six before it was implemented. Now it's down below two. But you can also point to Hong Kong and say, high fertility rate, now low, no one-child policy, the same for South Korea. So has the one-child policy been effective in reining it in, or is this the kind of change in fertility that you would have seen naturally otherwise? Yeah, what, I think uh, what, I think it's quite clear, that, you know, if you look at the international comparisons, you, you talk to demographers that this is going to happen uh, naturally. I mean, you go back to the 1970s, China implemented this policy known as later, longer, and fewer. So later marriages, uh, longer gaps in between the birth of children and fewer children. And that uh, reduced the birth rate from six down to three. So this was already in train before they went that radical next step and in- introduced the so-called one-child uh, policy. So this is going to happen. As countries get wealthier, families tend to have fewer children. So the party, of course, is going to claim success, but you have to ask yourself, what was the social, now economic consequences of this policy? The economic uh, implications are, are quite clear and will become even sharper in years to come. What we probably don't see as much is the social implications of that, you know, the way the party has kind of penetrated uh, directly into the lives of individuals in ways that no previous government was able to do and to interfere and to regulate the bodies of young Chinese women. And then the implications of that, whether it be through, you know, the human rights uh, violations, the female infanticide, the forced sterilization, and then now this sort of gender imbalance that China's dealing with. Unmarried men. Some argue it's one of the um, most volatile aspects of Chinese society. If you've got all these young men with, you know, testosterone pumping through their blood and they, you know, they can't find women. You know, where are they going to let off steam? I'll tell you what they'll do. They'll move mountains. Excellent. (laughs) That's all the time we have today. Thanks for a fascinating discussion today, Jim. Uh, No worries, man. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of Latrobe Asia. You can follow James Liebold on Twitter. He's at jliebold. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, and please leave a review there and tell your friends about it. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.